Welcome to this latest Cambridge University Press podcast. I'm Michael Watson, Executive Publisher for History at the Press, and today I'll be talking to Stephen Broadbury, Professor of Economic History at the University of Oxford and the co-editor of the forthcoming two-volume Cambridge Economic History of the Modern World. This is the first of two podcasts um, on the volumes, with today's focusing on volume one, which covers the period from 1700 to 1870. Um, many thanks, Steve, for joining me for today's um, discussion. I thought we'd start today with the conception of the project as a whole. You note in your preface that this Cambridge Economic History of the Modern World follows in the footsteps of similar sets of volumes on particular countries and regions. Why did you feel that the time was now ripe for a global economic history? I think within the last generation or so, um, economic history has globalised. So when I was a student, economic history research and teaching were both focused on national trends um, and uh, everything was conducted by local scholars in the main writing in their own national languages. Today, by contrast, there's a huge literature on most regions of the world. It's available in English and uh, there's also been a growing trend of co-authorship, which I think has facilitated an international comparative approach. And this has encouraged researchers to present their findings within a global framework. I'd say these trends are most advanced in work for the modern world from around 1700. And that's what really gave us the idea of focusing on the modern world for this um, two volume Cambridge Economic History. Uh, having said that and stressed uh, the global aspect, um, I also want to emphasise that despite that, um, we have tried very hard to retain what I think is a key traditional strength of economic history, a firm grounding in the local context, embracing the institutional details of national and regional economies. And that I think explains the overriding division of each volume into two parts. So we have a first part, uh, which has a series of regional chapters. And then in the second part, we focus on key themes, taking a global context. Um, we've also tried to incorporate a few other uh, trends from recent decades. Um, I would particularly highlight the greater use of quantitative data and also more um, explicit use of economic analysis. In both cases, though, I want to emphasize that we have worked very hard to make sure that these features are incorporated in an accessible way so that the book can reach as wide an audience as possible of um, both historians and various uh, social sciences. And what would you describe as the key themes that the volumes contributors set out to answer? Um, does the volume, for instance, offer new insights into why modern economic growth first emerged in 18th century Britain? Well, um, this volume is organised around the themes of the emergence of modern economic growth, that is uh, sustained growth of living standards uh, without a decline in population. Um, and secondly, the great divergence of living standards between the West and the rest of the world. So uh, the story of the emergence of modern economic growth in Britain, which was the first economy to achieve this modern economic growth, has really been transformed since the days when I was a student. 
um, work then showed that economic growth has been relatively slow uh, during the Industrial Revolution. This was a finding of um, my, my supervisor, in fact, Nick Crafts, and also um, around about the same time, Nick Harley. So if we project back from the present with slower growth, this implies that Britain must have been richer than people had once thought already by the 18th century. And subsequent work has filled in the patterns of growth with going back to the medieval period. And we see that there were two periods of rising living standards before the Industrial Revolution period. One was after the Black Death in the mid 14th century. And there was a second spurt after the Civil War in the mid 17th century. Now, it must be emphasized, neither of these were cases of modern economic growth, because in both cases, they coincided with population declining. So that's not moving to sustained uh, growth. Uh, other work on the rest of Europe has placed this um, long run trend of rising British prosperity in the context of a reversal of fortunes between Northwest Europe and Mediterranean Europe. This is now known as the little divergence to contrast with the great divergence between Europe and Asia. So whereas in 1300, uh, Britain and the Netherlands were sort of a poor backwater of Europe compared with the much richer Italy and Spain, by the 19th century, things are completely reversed. It's Italy and Spain are the backwaters, Britain and the Netherlands are the sort of cutting edge. Um, now, uh, another novel finding of recent research is that what characterised the successful Northwest European economies like Britain and Holland was not that they grew faster when they were growing. It's rather that they, they eliminated periods of negative growth or at least severely dampened them. Um, and uh, what that means is that uh, there was both less frequent uh, periods of, of negative growth and much um, shallower recessions or, or, or negative growth when when it actually occurred. So, so you touched there on um, some of the regional differences there, and um, part one looks at breaks um, the world down into regions. So, so what what would you say are the kind of key differences that we see highlighted in that part? Well, I, of course, I've already alluded to the little divergence within Europe. That's Northwest Europe overtaking Mediterranean Europe. And uh, also um, we could add to that Eastern Europe is, is lagging behind the leaders. There's also some other reversals of fortune. So in Asia, um, there, there had been a tr traditional um, leadership by uh, China. Uh, and as we get to the uh, late 19th century, we see Japan overtaking, has overtaken China. Um, and in fact, Japan becomes the first Asian economy to achieve modern economic growth after the Meiji Restoration. So this reversal of fortunes is partly due to that positive growth and development in Japan, but it's also due to negative per capita income growth in China. And this is, this is also the case in, in India. But uh, although Japan is um, is overtaking China and becoming the Asian leader, uh, it continued to grow more slowly 
than the leading Northwest European economies. So that the gap between the leading European countries like Britain and the Netherlands and the leading Asian country uh, becoming uh, Japan, that continues to widen during what we, we know as the great divergence. Uh, there's another reversal of fortunes um, occurring in the Americas between the former British colonies uh, and the uh, former uh, Spanish colonies. So um, per capita incomes were initially higher in the Latin American colonies, but the United States then forged ahead after obtaining um, independence from Britain. Um, and um, the newly independent Spanish and Portuguese colonies um, experienced a number of lost decades when they became independent in the 19th century, had negative growth. Uh, we could also think about the position of Africa. Today, that's the poorest region of the world, but that hasn't always been the case. Uh, and in the period 1700-1870, you know, it's still really on a par with Asia. This, the second part of the volume um, breaks down these regional differences that you've been outlining into proximate and fundamental sources of growth. And so how did you go about selecting those thematically focused chapters? What are the new approaches within the field that readers can expect to see treated in the volume? Um, well, yes. So here, here we're trying to explain the differential economic performance of regions that has been set out in part one. Um, and um, the explanations um, are really operating at two levels, the proximate and ultimate sources of growth. So the proximate sources of growth uh, are derived from a production function. Uh, so this is sort of relating output to the factors of production, which we discuss in, in two chapters. Uh, the first one on population and human capital, and the second on physical capital and technology. So this is really just saying, well, you can get more output if you put in more inputs, more capital, more labor, uh, if the technology improves, and so on. So these, these are the proximate uh, sources, uh, and they help us to understand how the transition to modern economic growth occurred, but they don't really cast any light on why it happened first in Britain and why it didn't spread quickly to all other economies. Uh, so, of course, if some economies grew faster than others because of uh, more investment or faster technological progress, then we would really want to know why investment and technological progress turned out to be faster in those economies. And that's the, the, the purpose of the ultimate uh, sources of growth, uh, which uh, we divide into uh, two categories, geography and institutions. And I think it's, it's really these two chapters that contain some of the newest and most innovative approaches uh, to recent economic history. Um, so let me say a bit about these these two chapters, because I think they're they're more original than perhaps some of the others or covering the newest material. Um, but so the chapter on geography makes a distinction between first and second nature geography. Uh, by first nature geography, we mean things like climate and natural resources. In, in, in this period, that, that's going to be particularly coal as the natural resource, key natural resource. Um, but second nature geography 
involves the forces of economic integration, um, we, we, in particular um, access to markets and agglomeration economies, which are you know, particularly associated with uh, the rise of cities. So the idea is that exogenously given first nature geography advantages or disadvantages can become amplified by the forces of economic integration. Uh, so favourable locations with high productivity are able to attract people and investment, which then further raises productivity. Unfavourable locations, though, um, attract fewer people and investment, and so they, they fall further behind. And um, reductions in the cost of trade can have quite asymmetric effects on different regions in this kind of world. If uh, transport costs are very high, then you have to produce near to your market. Uh, as transport costs uh, fall, um, then you can concentrate production in a few uh, regions, a few favourable locations, rather than having it spread around the world and then you shift the goods to where the people are. So the geography chapter then assesses to what extent the differential outcomes in the global economy over the period 1700-1870 can be explained using this new approach. Um, I, I, I think perhaps it's I can make this clearer if we take a, a, a specific example. Um, and that's the, the, um, a, the there's a shift in the global centre of gravity in cotton textile production during this period from India to Britain. Um, and of course, one thing we could say, uh, and this was quite common in, 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 in the old economic history literature, this is due to um, technological advance in Britain. But I think there's also an element of changing geography of trade and the reinforcing effects of the interaction between productivity growth and access to markets. So changes in the pattern of international trade removed constraints um, on British producers. Um, obviously, British producers didn't have any local cotton growing uh, in, in Lancashire, um, but they found new sources of supply from um, North America, which linked in to the slave-based economy of the Atlantic system and its triangular trade between Britain, Africa and America, with Britain as the central actor, uh, the centre of, of, of the empire. Um, in addition to that, um, growing access to export markets in the expanding British Empire created an increase in demand, which encouraged more firms to enter the industry and they could reap the uh, Marshallian external economies of scale because the industry was agglomerating in Lancashire. So that's really the, 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 the geography aspect. Um, and. Um, that there's then a chapter on institutions, and this I think really uh, incorporates one of the key developments in economic history in recent decades, the systematic analysis of institutions as a fundamental determinant of economic performance. This is very much associated with the work of Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize for economics. Um, so this chapter draws an important distinction between primary and secondary rules. 
Um, so I should say North defined rules of the game as, as his sort of definition of institutions. Um, and uh, primary rules are the rules that directly govern economic behaviour, such as property rights, criminal laws, traffic laws, and so on. While secondary rules are the rules that govern the formation or alternation of the primary rules. So how do we get institutional change if the, if the institutions and the, the rules are not conducive to growth? So primary rules can be seen as structuring the economic system and secondary rules, really the political system. How do you change the institutions? Understanding the role of institutions in explaining the differential outcomes in the global economy then must require more than just looking at the primary institutions such as property rights, but also it requires an analysis of the secondary institutions. Do you have a democratic system or a dictatorship uh, and so on? And, and, and how do the primary and secondary rules interact? Uh, this chapter contrasts the case of British North America, where modern economic growth began in this period, with Latin America, where it didn't. Uh, and it also considers the case of Japan, which underwent this radical institutional change in 1868 with the Meiji Restoration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with the exception of that chapter um, on institutions, which um, was um, which John Wallace wrote, um, I noticed that these are all co-authored chapters. And so presumably that was a conscious decision you made to bring different perspectives together on, on these topics. Yes, uh, this, this was something that I experimented with really when editing the Cambridge Economic History of Modern Europe uh, about 10 years ago, where um, many of the chapters uh, in that two volume book um, brought together several authors to make sure that the different regional perspectives within Europe were brought to bear on each topic. Um, at, at that time we were trying to break away from really a, a previously dominant West European bias in European economic history. We wanted to make sure that um, the East came in as well. Uh, in this case of course we need to guard against a wider Western bias which includes North America, not just uh, Europe. Um, and so we wanted to put together author teams covering different regions of the world. Mm -hmm. um, the, and the, the two volumes that they break in 1870. So why, why was it you picked that point as a divide? And are there major differences in the course of economic growth in the two periods? Yes, I think by 1870, it was clear that modern economic growth had arrived. And the world seemed to be divided between a small number of countries that had modernized and those that had not. Uh, and, and these uh, latter, less developed economies were then vulnerable to colonization by the former. So everybody in the world was sort of realizing there was this difference and that something needed to be done about it. Um, so the second volume discusses both the further development of the early core of industrialized Western nations and the spread of modern economic growth to the rest of the world. Uh, a further consideration is that actually around about 1870, there's a sea change in the provision of statistical data. Um, as more and more nations began to collect systematically the information needed to adopt policies so that they could um, affect economic 
performance efficiently. Mm. And, and what about the development of the global economy itself as a global system? To what extent does the volume highlight how this took shape and the pace of change? Well, uh, the world economy can be broken down into its regional components, as in the first part of each volume. Um, but uh, as you say, it's also necessary to analyse the world economy as a global system uh, governing international transactions, such as international trade and migration and international finance. Uh, it's also important, I think, to stand back and assess the roles of warfare and empire. This can be useful in guarding against the tendency of earlier generations of economic historians to focus only on the effects of European development on the rest of the world without paying much attention to the impact of developments flowing in the opposite direction. And how do you see all of this playing out in the periods um, 1700 to 1870? Well, we have um, three chapters um, dealing with these themes. Uh, the first one is on trade and migration. And uh, this shows that there was a greater trend towards market integration after 1820 than before. Um, and, and I think we can link this to the transformation of the global economy by a whole host of revolutionary technologies in transportation and communications. Uh, during the 18th century, also warfare was a major barrier to integration, uh, culminating in the French wars, which covered the period sort of 1792 to 1815. Uh, and these were fought in many regions of the world, uh, not just Europe. So it's a major upheaval. And after that's over, um, uh, we get this strong period of integration. Uh, there's also a chapter on the international monetary system. Uh, and this highlights the evolution of the system from bimetallism with um, gold and silver uh, as, as, as money. Uh, to the gold standard and very importantly the growing importance of bills of exchange to transfer funds for long distance trade rather than shipping gold and silver around you can move pieces of paper. Um, then coming on to warfare and empire the third chapter in this uh, sort of section on the global economy um, uh, I think one thing that's always struck me <laughs> is that economic historians tend to focus on the pre-war period, the post-war period, and maybe a period between wars, and cut out the wars as if warfare was some kind of anomaly and minor disruption to normal events, rather than a common occurrence that could sometimes lead to major turning points in history. Uh, so most European powers uh, and also China um, spent more than half the time between 1500 and 1799 at war with foreign enemies. So it's not really an exception, it's the norm. But by 1914, uh, as much as 84% of the world was under European control, either directly or as a now independent colony dominated by Europeans who had settled there. So the final chapter of the book, uh, therefore, considers warfare and empire as a separate topic within the framework of international transactions. How did Europeans come to so dominate the world? Part of the answer must obviously lie in the higher incomes and better technology afforded by their earlier transition to modern economic growth, which provided more resources for warfare. However, European states also raised more tax revenue per head 
going back further in time, they formed credible alliances and designed, designed effective armies. In other words, we can relate this to good institutions, which remember we've seen uh, is one of the fundamental uh, factors underlying the transition to modern economic growth. Yeah, um, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Um, but many thanks indeed, Steve, for those insights into volume one. I, I think the kind of range of our discussion, you know, shows the real riches of the volume. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners will want to check out the volumes themselves, uh, which will be uh, which will be available very shortly. Um, those of you who'd like to hear more about how the second volume takes this story right through to the present can tune into our next podcast. Thank you. Thank you.